So Nick, I just got my second dose of the COVID vaccine, so I'm super excited. Way to go. Yeah, I'm not feeling that great, but um, I still am really glad that I got this vaccine and I was able to read much more about it on the OBG Project's website where they have a ton of great information on COVID-19, both in and out of pregnancy. Yeah, the OBG Project, again, has an excellent online library. When you go straight to their website, obgproject.com, there's things ranging from COVID information, primary care information, the second trimester ultrasound atlas, grand rounds reports. There's just a lot of really, really useful stuff. You can also sign up for OBG First, which is their subscription service, um, where you can have access to all of the above, as well as create your own bookshelf so that you can go back to all the articles that you like to read about. So if you want to get a free year of OBG first. If you're a chief resident, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and there'll be a link there for you to get your free year of OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Priyag's Over Coffee. Well, today we have with us a very special guest. Uh, Dr. Vivian Melgen is a chief resident at Duke University. Um, Welcome, Vivian. Thanks, guys. So um, today we're going to be talking about HCG. And um, I know we use it every day, but Today we're going to go over what HCG actually is, uh, why we check it, what HCG does in normal pregnancies, and what kind of false positive tests come up when you test for HCG. For most people outside of OBGYN, a pregnancy test is pretty black and white. Either a woman's pregnant or she isn't. Um, But we all know that's not necessarily true. It's so much more than just a pregnancy test. And the magic of this topic also as an OBGYN is that it bridges together all the subspecialties in our field in a bunch of different ways. It's not uncommon for us to get consulted for a positive HCG quant obtained in routine pre-op testing, and it's a pretty unexpected scenario. Yeah, so Vivian, let's talk first about, you know, some definitions. So what exactly is HCG? HCG, or human chorionic gonadotropin, is part of a family of glycoprotein hormones. This includes TSH, FSH, and LH. These hormones are produced by the pituitary gland. That's right, HCG included. They're each heterodimers and they have an alpha and a beta subunit. The alpha subunits are identical and the beta subunits are all a little bit different. In fact, luteinizing hormone or LH and HCG are super similar and they come from shared genes. So when LH is being made in large amounts, HCG is also made as a byproduct and maybe a little bit elevated. HCG is metabolized by the liver and the kidneys. Got it. So you said that HCG comes from the pituitary. Are you sure? I, where does HCG come from? Traditionally, you think about HCG as being produced by a pregnancy. I'll say that in air quotes. Um, the part of a pregnancy that makes HCG is the trophoblast. That's eventually going to become the placenta. HCG also comes from the pituitary gland, as we mentioned earlier. And some cancers can make HCG. So what exactly does HCG do? Like, why do we need HCG during a pregnancy? To understand what HCG does, we need to backtrack a little bit and remember how pregnancy starts. No, not that part. To get to HCG production, there has to be fertilization and then implantation of the pregnancy. 
This process of reaching implantation takes about seven to 10 days as that embryo floats through the tube all the way to its final implantation site in the uterus. Once the embryo is implanted, the trophoblast makes HCG. That then stimulates the corpus luteum to keep making progesterone, which helps to continue to support a gestation. At about 10 to 12 weeks, HCG levels usually peak, and that thereafter, the placenta will take over HCG production. This is apparent in patient's thyroid testing. So in a normal pregnancy with an asymptomatic patient, thyroid function tests could be slightly abnormal at this point because, as I mentioned, with those heterodimers, you have some homology between TSH and HCG, and that cross-reactivity can make the test falsely positive. Okay, definitely. That's good to know and super helpful. But just to backtrack a little bit, you made it sound like there might be some point where someone's actually pregnant but not necessarily have HCG. Is that right? Yes. So while that little blastocyst is floating its way to implantation, the corpus luteum is making its own progesterone, and there's no HCG yet. So there is a time when a pregnancy test can be negative, but the woman's actually pregnant. So in order to minimize variation in our ability to detect a pregnancy, we should definitely time pregnancy testing to be done at least 15 days after that LH surge to give time for this transportation of the embryo, instead of testing at the time of expected menses, which might be a little bit sooner. This is why in contraceptive management, if we can't reasonably exclude a pregnancy, we recheck in two weeks, because at that point you'd capture most pregnancies. I think some people forget this at times in the clinical setting and just assume that if a pregnancy test is negative, it's negative and there's no way a woman can be pregnant or vice versa. But we have to remember, it's not a small deal to tell someone that their pregnancy test is positive or negative and that it could or could not be related to pregnancy in the midst of some of these clinical situations. And it can get really confusing for our patients. Yeah, speaking of confusing, you know, um, I feel like whenever we say like we want to check um, on someone's HCG, for example, or their levels of HCG, we always say check a beta. Like, why do we say that? Like I mentioned, HCG is a heterodimer. You have the alpha and the beta subunit. And the beta subunit we're often talking about when we say check a beta really means check a quant for HCG. The reference to beta is actually due to a misunderstanding when they were first making these HCG immunoassays. One of the bottles of antibodies back in the day was labeled as the beta subunit because they immunized against it to make the test. And people misinterpreted that as the test only testing for beta subunits. Most HCG tests actually detect all kinds of HCG when you get a quant. Really interesting history. What can we use HCG testing for then? So first things first, definitely for detecting pregnancy. We also use it for tumor marker monitoring in molar pregnancies and gestational trypoblastic neoplasia or GTN. And for our MFM audience, we use it for trisomy screening in pregnancy, like the quad screen, for example. Um, and what about HCG itself? So not testing, but do we use like HCG itself as a protein for anything? Absolutely. One of the evidence-based and legitimate ways to use HCG as a treatment is in the REI world. We use it for ovarian hyperstimulation for assisted reproductive technology. HCG is that, quote, trigger shot that we use to help mature eggs because it stimulates an LH surge due to its homology. Note, by the time you'd actually want to test for pregnancy in these patients, if they're doing ART, this HCG that they got as an injection should have cleared, so it shouldn't affect your testing when you're looking for a real pregnancy, though it can give you a false positive if they happen to get tested in the days following the injection. 
Okay, so classically, again, if we go back to testing for a bit, we talked about a couple of different things that we could use it for, but the classic, of course, is pregnancy detection, right? But sometimes we actually watch the rise of HCG, and we did an episode a while back about like early unknown location of a pregnancy type of management. What is actually, when we're watching that, the normal rate of rise for HCG? So we use serial HCG concentration measurements as a tool to help tell if a pregnancy is normal or abnormal. Back in the day, the rule of thumb was that HCG would rise approximately 51% every 48 hours in a normal pregnancy. Now we know that HCG rate of rise depends on the initial value that you have, and the percent rise is greater when you have a lower initial HCG value. So for example, if you have an initial HCG level of less than 1500, the expected rate of rise is greater than 49%. But if you start at about over 3000, the expected rate of rise is in the 33% range. Most normal pregnancies will rise faster than this. And, you know, I think we also measure HCG as well when we're looking to see if, for example, an ectopic pregnancy has resolved. So what is the normal level at which an HCG should go down, like if we're looking for, for example, in like a spontaneous miscarriage? While we have some clear guidelines about managing suspected ectopic pregnancy and methotrexate, it's a little bit different in miscarriages. So if you've given methotrexate for a suspected ectopic pregnancy, you should see a greater than 15% decrease in HCG levels between days four and seven following methotrexate administration. In miscarriages, it's a little bit different and a little less clear. There's no specific rule, but per ACOG, following a spontaneous abortion, HCG levels should normalize within about two to six weeks. And this likely depends on the initial value. All right. Certainly normal pregnancy can cause a positive pregnancy test. But what else can cause positive pregnancy tests? Pregnancy of any kind, normal or abnormal, or even ectopic. Also, people have been HCG doping. Um, people use it for weight oh, wow. loss and for sports. <laughs> There's also a slew of other things that can cause false positives that we'll get into a little bit later, but include cancers, pituitary HCG from chemotherapy or perimenopause. There's also familial HCG and kidney disease, all sorts of things. One thing I feel like I got a lot of when I was a resident is that there would be patients who would come into triage and they would say, you know, my home pregnancy test was negative with my urine pregnancy test, but um, I swear that I'm pregnant and I really want a serum pregnancy test. Like I want a blood test. So what really is the difference between the two? I mean, obviously, you know, one is a urine test, one is a blood test, but are those patients right? Is one better than the other? Um, does one Is one more sensitive, for example, for pregnancy? Urine tests are qualitative, meaning it's either positive or it's negative. And that's what patients see when they're at home. Um, most serum tests are quantitative, meaning that it actually gives you a number amount in um, international units per liter or milli international units per liter. So urine tests will typically turn positive at the same point at which a serum test is about 20 to 25. And I think that that's what patients are referring to when they say that they want to have their serum tested because it's, quote, more sensitive, because it'll be able to detect a pregnancy at potentially a lower level than when a urine test will turn positive. However, you can have a false negative urine study if the urine is very dilute and their HCG level is low. And I've definitely seen that in my training. Most of these tests, how they work, 
um, is that they employ antibodies that sandwich the HCG if it's present, and then that gets converted into some kind of signal that gives you a test result of positive, negative, or a number. Because the tests use antibodies, though, some other things can cause antibodies to agglutinate or link and create a false positive or negative result that you need to be aware of. On a typical urine test or a UPT, seeing one line is a sign that the control is working and the test is functional, and seeing two lines means that HCG is present. You can get a false negative test in rare situations called the hook effect. That's when you have such a high level of HCG, think levels like in choriocarcinoma and such, that the sandwich antibodies are saturated on both ends and they can't actually link together to give a signal. But that's usually in the you know several hundred thousand level range. That's really wild, actually, um, to even think about like a false negative kind of implications like that. But I know that false positives happen for sure. Um, and I've certainly seen my fair share of weird ones too. Can you talk to us a little bit more about false positives? Absolutely. You can get false positives from a bunch of non-pregnancy related causes. And we've already mentioned a few of them with GTN, pituitary HSG, sorry, HCG, end-stage renal disease, familial HCG, heterophile antibodies, and doping, of course. Um, so let's delve into some of these briefly. Heterophile antibodies are something that you often hear referred to as phantom HCG, very spooky. These are nonspecific, low affinity antibodies that can cross-link the antibodies in a test and make it seem positive. So the question is, where do these antibodies come from? Some people at greater risk of having heterophile antibodies are people who've worked on a farm or in a veterinary facility and have been exposed to some of these antibodies through animals and around them. Some other people who have these antibodies are women with rheumatologic conditions or patients who've received recombinant antibodies for medical treatments of some sort. Other people have received plasma exchange from unknowingly pregnant donors that have HCG in the samples that are given to them. And you can filter out for these with several different ways. One of the things that you can do is by cross-checking with a urine because a urine should be negative because there should be no antibodies in their urine. You can also try a different assay to see if it doesn't cross-react in a different assay. Or you can call your lab and have them perform serial dilutions or use a heterophile blocking agent. Another cause that you can see for non-pregnancy related false positives is pituitary HCG, like I mentioned. Pituitary HCG is often seen in perimenopause and post-chemotherapy. This gives you a positive because of its homology to luteinizing hormone. So when LH production is high in these two settings, the HCG is made as a byproduct and can give you a false positive, though usually at a pretty low level. You can suppress this and confirm your diagnosis by giving a woman OCPs to see if it will normalize, and that usually takes a couple of weeks. Another cause of false positives is what we call a chemical pregnancy, and I know we tossed that term around, and it's not necessarily a false positive because there is a pregnancy. It's just an implanted conception that makes HCG, but then results in a miscarriage by the time of expected menses. Familial HCG is a really bizarre and rare cause um, that can raise HCG levels. And this can be present throughout the person's entire life. Usually they have a family history of having false positive HCGs and that way you can help figure it out or order genetic testing. A final cause that I get consulted about pretty frequently is kidney disease. Kidney disease is one of the most common causes we get called for, and it's a pretty tricky one to help sort out. The exact mechanism for why patients with end-stage renal disease have false positive HCG is not entirely known, but we think it's related to impaired renal clearance and increased gonadotropin levels. 
The tough part is that these patients often don't produce urine. So you get serum testing and it can be positive at a lower level, but then you can't actually cross-check it with urine to see if it's a heterophile and have to do other tests instead. Often these patients are tested in the setting for prepping for transplant and sometimes in the final stretch before they go to the OR for a new kidney. So a positive test can really complicate things and slow down progress for them. Mm -hmm. To make matters worse, they often have complicated menstrual histories, so it's really hard to cross-check the timing if they're possibly pregnant. It's estimated that over 1.5% of dialysis-receiving reproductive-aged women conceive over two years, so it is possible that they can get pregnant even though they're often pretty ill. Usually, using a good history, you can figure this out, and oftentimes people have been tested over a course of a couple of years and have had several low-level quants, so it can help you suggest that it's a false positive. Some authors even suggest using an old-fashioned progesterone level to help clarify the situation, though it's not entirely foolproof. So yeah, I guess kind of in summary, you know, pregnancy testing doesn't seem quite as simple as positive, negative, exciting. What take-home messages do you kind of have for us, Vivian? Remember, first and foremost, always know that it's okay to trend an HCG level, as long as you don't think she has a ruptured ectopic. That needs surgery. A few things to keep in mind when you're interpreting HCG levels um, anywhere in the ER or in clinic is a really thorough history. You want to clarify the timing of the menstrual cycle. You also want to clarify if the history and the imaging is consistent with pregnancy. You also want to check if urine and serum levels correlate and look for any signs of malignancy or GTD. Awesome. Thank you so much, Vivian, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about this very important topic. Um, so, Nick, I think we should summarize. Sure. So, Vivian gave us a masterclass on beta human chorionic gonadotropin, or simply beta HCG, today. We learned that HCG is produced by the pituitary gland um, as it's part of a family of glycoproteins that includes TSH, FSH, and LH. Traditionally, we think of it as being produced by a pregnancy, which is correct in the fact that HCG is made by the trophoblast, which will eventually become the placenta, but it can also come from the pituitary, and some cancers can even make HCG. HCG itself stimulates the corpus luteum to keep making progesterone, which can continue to support the pregnancy itself. And then at about 10 to 12 weeks, HCG is usually where it peaks. And after that, the placenta will actually take over making HCG. So because of this, there is a time when someone can be pregnant, but they don't necessarily have HCG, and that's when the blastocyst is making its way to implantation. And so that's why when we do a pregnant pregnancy test for people, we usually should wait at least 15 days after an LH surge instead of testing at the time of expected menses because that may be too early for that pregnancy test to come back positive. We then talked about different ways to use HCG and HCG testing. HCG gets used apparently for things like doping as well, but most commonly it can be used artificially for um, in the REI world to basically be the trigger shot to help mature eggs that basically simulates an LH surge due to the hormone's homology with LH. HCG testing can be used to detect pregnancy. It can be used in tumor marker monitoring and molar pregnancy and gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, um, and also can be used for screening and for trisomies in pregnancy with the quad screen, for example. 
We then talked about the normal rate of rise for HCG in pregnancy and also um, normal rate of HCG going down in a failed pregnancy or treatment with methotrexate for ectopic pregnancy. So back in the day, we used to think that HCG should rise about 51% every 48 hours. And now we know that HCG rate of rise depends on the initial value. So that percentage of rise is higher with lower values. So if an HCG initially is less than 1,500, that expected rise should be about 49% compared to HCGs over 3,000, where the expected rate of rise is about 33%. And in terms of HCG levels going down after methotrexate treatment, there should be a 15% or greater decrease um, from day four to day seven after methotrexate, or with a spontaneous uh, abortion per ACOG, there's no specific rule for decline, but HCG levels should normalize within two to six weeks. We moved on to talk about testing after that, noting that urine tests are qualitative and most serum tests are quantitative, where urine tests turn positive generally when the serum level of HCG is above 20 to 25 international units per liter. Most of these tests employ antibodies that will sandwich HCG when it's present and convert that into a test result. You can get false negative tests in this situation with a rare thing called the hook effect, where HCG levels are so high, like they would be, for instance, in GTD, that sandwich antibodies are saturated on both ends and then they can't link together to give the signal. False positives are more common, though, and can be even weirder, and there are a number of reasons that false positives can arise, including heterophile antibodies, are known as phantom HCG, pituitary HCG, often in perimenopausal women or post-chemotherapy, chemical pregnancies, familial HCG, and then finally in kidney disease and stage renal disease. All right. Well, um, Vivian, thank you again so much for coming onto our podcast. Thanks, guys. This is awesome. Yeah, this was a delight. I feel like I've never learned so much about HCG than I did today. All right. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or you can donate to the show on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Or if you have a correction for this show or any other show, have questions for us or for Vivian, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.